You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. We should let you know that the White House Coronavirus Task Force is expected to hold a briefing later this hour. You can watch that live on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org, and we will have full coverage in our news breaks at the top of the hour on All Things Considered and throughout the day. Now back to the conversation. Well, you know, this morning I jumped on my iPad and was surprised that I could not get Internet access, and there, there was a new server error message that I'd never seen before. This is a, there's an unprecedented amount of activity online, and we wondered where the choke points of data on the World Wide Web could develop. We reached out to Fred Rohde, president of DR Fortress. The company is the only commercial internet exchange and the largest data center and cloud service provider in Hawaii. It handles clients like AT&T, Hawaiian Tel, and Spectrum. Rohde tells us there are so many areas where things could get overstressed. He's already seen networks moving sluggishly this month because there is so much volume on our systems at one time. We actually were struggling with um, WebEx, so we're in talks with Cisco to see if we can get a WebEx uh, node out here. We're trying to talk to Zoom to do the same thing because the schools haven't got back in yet, but they're going to be using WebEx and Zoom. So if we can get a node out here, hopefully that will alleviate some of the congestion on the Internet going to the mainland and back. And then I was on a call with the, the governor and whatnot, and uh, the first time I called in, it was all circuits were busy. So I think lots of people... Um, using the phone systems and the internet uh, we're going to hear some drop-offs here and there and some people might not be able to get in because they'll maybe reach the limits but uh, for the most part it actually did pretty good the schools haven't gotten they haven't been doing their telecommunicating yet for all the classes i that's what i'm fearful is gonna break but i know uh, we were using webex just for our, our normal call within within our company and we were having some issues so i'm sure it functioned but again some people had trouble getting in but once you're in it it was working fine well we're in uncharted territories because we've never had this kind of volume all at one time you've got so many people that are working remotely and I just know my time in TV news, let's say when we were going to do our live shots and our, our pack relied on cell phone batteries. And they said, well, yeah, it, it'll work great as long as you're not in a crowd and everybody's not on the cell, phone, cell phones. Uh, you're just stressing yeah. the system. Oh, there's several different points that can get congested, right? So in your scenario with the cell phone, if you're in a specific area, the cell towers can only handle so much load. So if you spread all that out, you know, across many different towers, it's fine. But once you get everybody in one location and they all hit, you know, the same device all at the same time, it starts to hit its limits. So that's going to happen in different uh, areas. You know, you're going to be in your neighborhood and maybe your ISP is going to hit certain limits in the neighborhood. You know, we used to see that when people would go home and all the kids would start to game and get on Netflix. Well, now it's not just when you go home, it's going to be, you know, when you work remote and when the kids actually start to do their distance learning and the internet's going to get hit in your neighborhood it could be your neighborhood that actually slows down you know because most of that traffic used to be with the businesses and there'll be less with the businesses so the the core backbone should be fine it's just you know pockets here and there just like that cell tower you know analogy where too many people are hitting that one device all at the same time it could get saturated the other thing that can happen is you know the webex and the zooms of the world you know they could start to get crushed and so they have performance issues as well. So that's the one thing that we're trying to reach out to them to have them do uh, an edge node in Hawaii for, you know, WebEx and Zoom and maybe Google to see if they could, you know, alleviate, you know, you hitting one location 
and having those servers overloaded, spreading that out. And I'm, they've been doing that for years, and Hawaii is usually last on, our, on their list because, you know, they don't even see us as a Tier 2 market. But hopefully we can, you know, we're going to be offering some free stuff for them so that they can at least, um, you know, drop into Hawaii uh, any type of device that they can um, help, you know, alleviate these uh, saturated nodes that they're, you know, we're going to be hitting from Hawaii. So explain that term, node. So there's different um, pieces of equipment. There's a router that's involved, you know, that that does the negotiation of where the Internet traffic needs to go, and then there's servers that actually hold the content, and then there's switches that, you know, so all of that equipment uh, we call a node or a POP, a point of presence. Um, So there's different companies that already do that, like Google does that, Facebook does that. There's another company called Akamai. And so, like, when you're trying to get to something popular on YouTube, um, you're actually not hitting Google on the mainland. You're hitting Google, like, in our data center because they do what's called a content distribution network. And they take that content and making popular in Hawaii, make you hit the servers in Hawaii. And we just happen to be their home. Now, many I... companies do that. Facebook, Microsoft. There's a company called Akamai that does it for your iOS updates. So like when you're updating your your Apple phone, you're not actually getting that from Cupertino in California because if everybody around the planet tried to, you know, download all one time, they would blow up. There's just not enough bandwidth and enough service to do that. So what they do is they cache it, they take a, a portion of that, and they push it into the neighborhoods around the world so you're hitting it locally and it's able to handle all of the you know, millions of, of users doing the updates. So that's what we're trying to do with WebEx and with Zoom and with Google to have them increase their nodes and localize their nodes in Hawaii so that when everybody's doing it, not just U8, that it actually functions properly. Now, when I talked to UH's chief technology officer, he was uh, giving the example of uh, the Eddie Aikau surf meet where everybody tried to go, <laughs> you know, nice. uh, live stream at the same time and it crashed. It's the same kind of deal. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's um, if you're not prepared for it, and, and most of the systems aren't, um, you know, they're, they're built on demand. As the demand is there, then you start building out these edge nodes um, in markets where it, make it where it matters, right? And so Hawaii, um, we have some of those edge nodes, but for these, um, you know, collaboration tools, we don't have most of them doing um, it to the edge. It's just been doing it at a central location. Some of them use, um, you know, the West Coast, and some of them use a distributed throughout the continental U.S., but they don't have necessarily collaboration nodes in Hawaii. And that's what we're trying to help with before all the schools go back. So we don't know how long this is going to last. Hopefully we'll, we'll turn the corner quickly, but right now we have the stay-at-home order till April 30th with it could go longer. That's a lot of people that are working remote. And it is kind of staggering when you think it's not just Hawaii. It's, you know, all of the USA and, and, and the whole world is working remotely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if we would have known investing in Zoom stock would have been awesome. <laughs> So, you know, we hear that term surfing the net. I mean, wow, we're really going to see a tsunami as far as, like, users jumping on everywhere. Yeah, we talked to Netflix. We're hoping to get a a cash note here, so hopefully that will alleviate some of the traffic. But, again, it's not necessarily going to be 
at the server or the node itself. It could be in your neighborhood that clogs up. So when you're working, tell your family not to be gaming or getting on Netflix while you're working because that'll definitely affect you. And if you're trying to use a collaboration tool or you're doing a, you know, some type of video conference, you'll definitely feel your video degrade or your voice degrade if somebody else is here because it happen in your house as well. If you don't have a, a wireless router that can handle lots of traffic or your bandwidth that you're buying from your ISP is not enough bandwidth and multiple users on it can definitely have an impact just in your own home. So there are lots of choke points, lots of areas where things could go wrong and it's hard to say what's happening. Correct. Okay. I mean, you might see it where you live in the universe where you live as you see all this data come in and go but to the average person at home, all you'll see is what maybe oh server not responding <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, a circle of death just spinning around in your screen and you don't know what's going on. Yeah, that's sometimes it's going to either be the server's not working or it could be that the network is clogged somewhere along the line between you and that server. But there's lots of different things that can slow you down. What about maintenance? How do we fit that in when everybody's on all the time? Oh, uh, they just do. I mean, sometimes. They'll do emergency maintenance if they found a bug or maybe they're doing an upgrade and then they'll uh, sometimes they'll notify you, sometimes they won't. You just got to kind of deal with it. And sometimes you can jump on different networks, right? You can use your, you know, if your ISP is having maintenance or they're having an outage, you can use your cell phone to do a hotspot. But having a, a backup of something, if you're using Zoom, have a backup of WebEx or Uber Conference or, you know, that kind of thing. But I know Microsoft has their team saying that they launched. Some people are using um, FaceTime. So there's different, you know, products that you can use. We have a bunch of different ones because, again, sometimes one is not working as well as others because they're just getting bombarded. But having multiple backups if you're, you know, working remote is, is going to be key because, again, like you said, if they're doing an update or upgrade, they take down the servers to do a patch or uh, whatever, having an alternative is going to be key or you're going to just have to postpone whatever you had or you're going to get dropped. It, it is going to be what it is, and we'll figure it out along the way because, again, this is unprecedented amount of people that are going to jump on the Internet. So a big test. University of Hawaii will be working the bugs in their system this week, but then there are lots of private schools and other folks that will be uh, also getting on probably in another week or so. So that's going to be the Yeah, I think uh, April. What about the um, businesses? What what about the businesses and state government? You know, like we saw the overload at the unemployment office, and, and they thought they were ready going into it, but they weren't. <laughs> yeah, so they, they're, they're trying. I don't know how big of a pipe to buy, and then usually with a speed of the internet you need to have at your location. Uh, you don't know you don't you don't know if you're expecting just a handful of people or everybody at one time. I know they they're going to online for the unemployment, mm -hmm. and then they saw a spike in that. So we'll see how that fares. Yeah, um, they're getting slammed again. Servers are getting slammed. The bandwidth is getting slammed. Or it, you just you can't prepare for this because. Nobody knew that this was going to be this devastating in terms of our hospitality economy and, you know, more are coming because, you know, Hawaiian Airlines diminished their um, long-haul capacity mm -hmm. to anywhere far, yeah. and that's a lot of people there. I know they haven't furloughed anybody, but they've been asking them to voluntarily do it. There's the hotels, and then everybody that supports the hotels. I mean, just Waikiki alone is going to be That's I know it was there probably three weeks ago. And I was taking my investors to Hali Kalani from the airport. It took me 20 minutes at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday. 
And that was before everything happened. So it had already been diminished. And so this is just like a rapid pace. That was Fred Roti, president of DR Fortress, talking about the congestion some people may be experiencing with so many people working remotely and so many students beginning to transition to distance learning. We did check with the University of Hawaii this week and we're told so far no major crashes, but Roti says the real test may be when private and public schools jump on next month. And we now look abroad to Europe, checking in with the BBC as it continues to update us with the latest with COVID-19 overseas. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Wednesday, the 25th of March. I'm Peter Goffin with the latest on the pandemic. U.S. Senate leaders agree on a $2 trillion rescue package to protect the American economy. Spain becomes only the second country after Italy to record more deaths than China. And Vladimir Putin postpones a referendum on major changes to Russia's constitution. We begin in the U.S., where, after days of deadlock and debate, Senate leaders have reached an agreement on a massive stimulus package to ease the economic strain of the coronavirus outbreak. Our U.S. correspondent Peter Bowes has the details. The scope of the bill is unprecedented. A $2 trillion package of measures to help rescue the U.S. economy from the devastating impact of the coronavirus shutdown. Many Americans can expect to receive checks of up to $1,200. Funds will be set aside for small businesses and hospitals as they struggle to deal with the rapidly spreading virus. The bill will be rushed through Congress and is expected to become law within days. Spain has become only the second country after Italy to record more deaths than China, where the virus originated. Spanish officials have said more than 3,000 people have now died there. Our Europe reporter, Gavin Lee, has the story. Madrid, we know where two-thirds of those deaths have happened, but also the Catalonia region in the east, a big spread there, huge concern of, of concentrated areas of Spain where the authorities simply cannot cope because... The mortuaries, the morgues in Madrid are full to capacity. Soldiers have come in, they've opened up an ice rink where they're bringing bodies as a temporary morgue there. In Russia, the outbreak has prompted Vladimir Putin to delay a referendum on constitutional changes that would allow him to stay in office for years to come. And yet, the Kremlin has been downplaying the effect of coronavirus. Our Moscow correspondent Steve Rosenberg has been following the coverage in the Russian media. If you'd been watching Russian state television recently, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Russia is on another planet. While coronavirus has been causing death and disruption in so many parts of the world, news anchors here have been declaring that the situation with COVID-19 in Russia is under control. In this, the biggest country in the world, there are officially a few hundred cases. Steve Rosenberg there. And official numbers from Russia now show a sharp and steady rise in the infection rate. Now, countries around the world are scrambling for resources as the coronavirus pandemic continues to spread. In Zimbabwe, doctors are refusing to return to work until they get access to protective equipment. The BBC's Shingai Nyaka explains. The doctors say the shortage of protective clothing has put them at risk of contracting COVID-19. It comes as the health ministry confirmed Zimbabwe's first community transmission. Some hospitals have begun attending to emergency cases only and discharging stable patients to decongest hospitals. 
Meanwhile, a consignment of detection tests and protective clothing has arrived in the country. Here in London, Prince Charles, the heir to the British throne, has tested positive for coronavirus. Officials at Buckingham Palace have said the prince, who is 71, is displaying mild symptoms, but otherwise remains in good health. Johnny Diamond is our royal correspondent. Prince Charles was tested on Monday. He's currently up in Scotland on the Balmoral Estate and he proved positive. His wife, Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, was also tested. She proved negative. They're both now in self-isolation. The prince ended his public engagements on March the 12th and his doctors say that his earliest contagious period, the period when he could have spread the disease would have been, or the virus rather, would have been on the 13th. India is still getting used to being in total lockdown. And one of our listeners in Delhi, named Papri, told us what it's been like so far. I've heard some reports from uh, other parts of India where people have violated the lockdown and been out in gatherings. I'm trying to cope with working from home and, you know, balancing life. My flatmate basically has been driving me insane because she's not working at the moment. Her form is closed and she is going nuts. So we have found a solution and whenever we are getting time, we're making some time to play board games at home. So that's how we are coping with it. That's Papri, who lives in Delhi. And that's all for now. But we'll be back tomorrow with another coronavirus global update. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Today for our quiz question, we look at the life of a paleontologist. She was born in 1867 on the grounds of what is now Mission Houses Museum. She had a rich pedigree. Both sides of her family founded two of Hawaii's big five companies. She briefly attended Punahou School, but her family moved to Oakland in 1882 so her grandfather could receive medical care. A lecture by John Merriam at UC Berkeley in 1900 piqued her interest in paleontology. She offered to underwrite the cost of his upcoming expeditions, and she took part in some, including a trip to Fossil Lake in Oregon and Mount Shasta in Northern California. In 1906, she started making monthly contributions to Cal's Department of Paleontology, and she stayed in touch with Professor Merriam, who would inform her when important specimens were collected. However, when Merriam left Cal to become president of the Carnegie Institution in Washington, she felt snubbed because he didn't inform her of her plans. She was further upset when the remaining paleontology faculty merged with the Department of Geological Sciences. In response, she helped create a museum of paleontology as a separate unit of the university, independent of the geology department. She would establish an endowment for the museum in 1934. Do you know the name of the paleontologist who founded it? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. (music) 
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff proudly support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Updated property listings with photos and select virtual tours at locationshawaii.com. As communities across the country shelter in place, the move is toward working remotely in the world of medicine. Uh, that turned our attention to telemedicine. The founder of We Prescribe, which is composed of board-certified physicians, talked with us this week about its place in our ever-changing world. Dr. Neil Shauhan explains. I've done an awful lot of telemedicine, and I still do in England from here. And so I actually was working this morning, early hours of this morning, and it's really bad there. I mean, I... I Honestly, I think it's three, four weeks ahead of Hawaii in terms of the kind of spread, but they just announced they've gone into kind of lockdown as of today. But in terms of how much it's overwhelmed the system, it's, it's really a mess. You, you can't get in. You can't see a PCP. The urgent cares have like a 14-hour waiting list right now, and they're not testing anyone. They're only testing people that have become unwell, unwell enough to need to go into hospital. So, And then one of my friends told me that now healthcare workers are scared because um, people are trying to rob them as they leave the hospital to get their ID cards to try and get in. That was one of the new things I heard. So, oh, my goodness. Stuff. Wow. Well, so how can we help alleviate some of the stresses on our system right now? Telemedicine is, you know, essentially allows for video consultation, so you don't need to be in the same room as the doctor. And, you know, for many of us here in Hawaii, we're, we're all concerned about exposure and, and the spread of infection which could potentially overwhelm our healthcare systems if we don't act on things now. And that's why the CDC and the World Health Organization has urged the public to use telemedicine. This, is, you know, this will allow us uh, to continue with social distancing, keeps the public safe, and as well as that, it's gonna allow you know, safety of our healthcare workers, you know, avoiding unnecessary exposure. In addition, it's gonna keep access to clinics and hospitals available for those that really need it. We saw, I think, this past week how a lot of hospitals are, are saying, please, you know, put off your um, your elective surgeries so we don't tax our system uh, at this point in time. Yeah, I think it's going to be critical to just make sure that our, our healthcare systems are able to look after those that really need it, you know, focusing on acute care at this time. You know, we, we've got options. So that that's where I think telemedicine is going to be really helpful in order to allow people to have access to care, um, but not necessarily needing to see someone in person. So how, how is it helping here in Hawaii? For us, you know, we prescribe our, our board certified physicians here in Hawaii, they're able to treat over 80 common illnesses, and we include COVID screening and expedited testing. So, you know, by doing that, we're able to see those patients and kind of look after their healthcare needs without affecting their potential exposure if they're concerned they might have COVID. And in addition to that, if people are, you know, needing help for other things not related to COVID, they're able to reduce their kind of risk of infection or kind of um, exposure by using that sort of service as well. You know, essentially, we're able to screen people. So you fill out a questionnaire that helps assess your risk of kind of COVID-19. You know, let's focus on that. Uh, you then have a real-time video consultation with a doctor who will discuss next steps and, if necessary, help arrange expedited testing. Um, and then we're able to kind of follow up as well. So I think we're doing a great job of you know being able to allow people access to telemedicine, keeping it safe, 
uh, spreading the message that it is a necessary area of medicine for people to seek access now. And, uh, you know, we have a, a great group of, you know, diligent and strong physicians here locally that are able to kind of treat our patients. We have, have been seeing a lot of patients, and especially with what's kind of going on recently, um, we've definitely seen an increase. So we're able to see people on our platform as soon as kind of 15 minutes for them to kind of go through a questionnaire that deems whether they're high, medium, or low risk. And then when they do their video consultation with the doctor, able to then determine whether they're going to need testing or not. This way, we, we reduce that exposure. So instead of them trying to physically go in to see a doctor, for example, or trying to attend an urgent care clinic, we're able to do that initial assessment from them being safely at home. And then we're able to expedite testing at kind of location centers that are convenient for them, rather than them potentially kind of being out, giving them that short, sharp advice to self-isolate and all the safe measures they can do to kind of reduce their kind of risk of exposure or spread of infection. That's why I think telemedicine is going to be really helpful here. Yeah, we saw here locally some visitors, you know, went into urgent care and they didn't mm -hmm. let the healthcare workers know that they had been in contact with a positive case until afterwards. Yeah, and that's so unfortunate. That, that's where, you know, all of us need to be kind of more mindful uh, and understanding, you know, that there's sequelae and, and potential risks, you know, in terms of you, if you've been in close contact with someone, the ripple effect that can have, you know, if you go into a clinic, you potentially spread it to those kind of healthcare workers, they then have to, you know, go, go you know, go under uh, treatment or, sorry, screening, potentially kind of quarantine or self-isolation. Even by doing that, that can potentially affect um, the, the way we overwhelm the healthcare system by potentially taking people outside of our workforce if we're not careful. You know, I, I think we're still learning a lot about this. I know there's a, a lot of push for, you know, the self-isolation or quarantine, quarantine measures and, you know, a, a real emphasis on telemedicine. So, you know, trying to reduce the kind of overwhelming number of people coming into hospitals and clinics and really kind of saving that resource for those that really need it. In some of our local hospitals, they've erected those tents, you know, outside the ER to be able to divert kind of a stream, the stream of people who are there for COVID concerns. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, being able to provide people with access to testing is good. We just want to make sure that we do it in a way uh, that prevents potential or unnecessary exposure. And of the other countries across the globe, can you point to areas where they're just so far ahead in this world of tele telemedicine, more so than maybe the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I don't have much experience in many other places. You know, the places I've personally worked is England, Canada, and the U.S. Um, I would say, you know, we're pretty far ahead of the curve in, in England. Now, it's a pretty well-known entity in terms of people using telehealth. You know, initially before this, you know, COVID pandemic, convenience of it, you know, being able to access care when you need it uh, from the comfort of your own home using your computer or your uh, phone is extremely convenient and knowing that it's safe and that you can treat an, a, lo a lot of conditions is definitely a great additional service for a lot of people. Um, I think the U.S. you know, does have telemedicine. I think now with the COVID pandemic, uh, we're becoming more aware of it and seeing the kind of benefits of using kind of telehealth measures. The UK is definitely kind of struggling right now, and I would say they're kind of three, four weeks ahead. We, as a kind of community, can do the things we need to to kind of stop it getting to that point or 
overwhelming the healthcare systems or you know the contagion spread. I think telemedicine is going to be a critical part of that, and then just you know patient education in terms of the social distancing. You know, really kind of being good in terms of hygiene measures and listening to what's what's out there in terms of you know staying home. You've been listening to Dr. Neil Chahan, founder of We Prescribe, a telehealth company here in the islands. You know, just after we did this interview, the company was notified that it had screened its first positive COVID-19 case. To learn more and find links, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company extending aloha and mahalo to their employees and to all the people who are working to keep Hawaii's communities healthy. ParHawaii.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Mars Cafe, we'll find out what it takes to successfully work remotely. We'll explore some of the tools, technology, and best practices to telecommute and manage projects and distributed teams. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa offering the global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu The strain of COVID-19, that's the subject of our reality check today. Honolulu Civil Beats, Chad Blair on the line today. Good morning, Chad. Hi, Catherine. So you folks broke this story online about the brouhaha with the lieutenant governor. Yes, we did, and it's, um, thank you, it's doing Boy, gangbusters. A lot of people very interested in this story. In a nutshell, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green um, reports say that he has been essentially iced out of the David E. Gay administration uh, regarding response to uh, COVID-19 or the coronavirus. And we do have a statement from the governor saying, in fact, what they're doing is they are um, they're reevaluating, reconsidering how they conduct state government. Uh, during this time, and that includes social distancing, and that means in some cases there will only be 10 people uh, per meeting or per press conference. And if Josh Green is not, uh, his expertise is not uh, fitting for that particular uh, press conference, he won't be part of it. But the way others describe it, in a nutshell, is that the governor feels, well, if you will, overshadowed and even threatened by Josh Green, a medical doctor who has been speaking out quite forcefully, quite publicly, uh, about the coronavirus and criticizing the state's response. Yeah, and to be clear, he's not a um, infectious disease specialist nope. or epidemiologist like Dr. Park right. is, but he is an emergency room doctor. Right, and he has some, some other background as well. And, uh, you know, Sarah Park is an epidemiologist, and Bruce Anderson uh, has uh, vast experience as well in, in various fields applicable. He's the Department of Health Director, and it is the DOH that's been taking the lead on this. But this all came up in the last couple of days. And while we did break the story, uh, others were looking into it, and it was the talk among many. Basically, the directive we hear from the governor was for the cabinet and other staff not to not to consult uh, Dr. Green uh, and to, in fact, defer to uh, General Hara or the Department of Health. Well, you know, it was funny because when I uh, 
jumped online to read your story. I think there were maybe, I don't know, 50, 60 comments. But this morning, it's like, you know, it's really kind of soared. And when I was looking at it, so it was a little bit of both. It was folks who were saying, oh, you know, we ought to replace David Ige with <laughs> Josh Green and vice versa. Like, hey, this guy's grandstanding. He's running for governor and he's, uh, you know, um, he needs to get in his place. So it, it's just interesting. Yeah, those- those are fair observations, and, and by the way, they continue uh, every second we seem to get a new comment. But I, I will say another thing that I heard from a lot of people and why this story seems to be resonating is people want information. They want guidance, and say what you will about Josh Green. Remember, it was just a couple of months ago he led that group to Samoa, right, for a measles vaccination. Yes. And and uh, no question he's an ambitious man. He is, in fact, running for governor. David Ige is term limited. He can't run again. Uh, but I think mostly what I hear people crying for is they want transparency. They want to hear from their government. They want straight answers. Yeah, it, it is uh, it is interesting because now of the, uh, I guess, the introduction of HAIMA, uh, yeah. since FEMA is taking the lead on the national front, and, uh, uh, you know, Kenneth Hara is the incident commander, I guess, right? The guy in Correct. control. Yeah. He's the, he's the point man for the governor. and But, you know, it's kind of awkward at, at that press conference Monday, uh, with the governor, with General Hara and others, uh, Josh Green was conspicuously, conspicuously absent. Uh, and this is, of course, when the governor was updating us that, that we'd have this statewide sheltering in place, if you will, following Oahu, following uh, Maui, Kauai, and so forth. Um, and he was asked, the governor was asked, General Hara was asked, and then the answers they gave as to why Josh Green was not there was, was certainly very vague. We have heard flat out that Green has been asked to leave not attend at least one or two previous press conferences. And the governor is under a lot of pressure. We saw the uh, House and Senate leadership, uh, you know, saying that he wasn't coming out forcefully enough, something we've heard before. Uh, And, uh, you know, so I don't know if if it's more stressful for people because, you know, our leadership uh, is kind of, you know, at their throats, I guess. Yeah, not yeah. getting along. I, I think you're. Yeah, we're seeing this tension all over the the country. Certainly in other places in the world, are leaders doing enough? Are they acting fast enough? Remember, Green has been pointedly uh, critical of the state not moving fast enough on the testing, not moving enough to deal with cruise ships disembarking, not moving enough to have a travel quarantine uh, for airplanes, and 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 in fact, these things have gone forward. Uh, either from the federal or the state level, and that has been a, that has certainly resonated with people. Is did we act fast enough? Right, and you know I, I can see maybe one point of view where the governor is holding back to, to let the different counties handle because you know everybody's got a different their different situation on each island. Uh, but yeah, certainly uh, you want someone that's going to be out there for you, and you want everybody to be on the same page. Yeah, and I think that's what everyone's uh, shooting for. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. Take care. All right. That was uh, Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read his story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. In our backyard quiz, we were looking at a paleontologist who went above and beyond on her expeditions. A memorial memorial stone at the University of Colorado campus says, 
she found men a nuisance on her arduous field trips. In 1905, she explored the West Humboldt Range in Nevada, which was dubbed the Saurian Expedition. They found the largest ichthyosaurs in the world and most complete fossils in North America. Despite paying for the expedition and helping to pack the fossils to bring back to Berkeley, she did most of the cooking along with another woman on the trip. Her interest led her to become a benefactor for the University of California's Berkeley Department and help establish the Museum of Paleontology at the school. She also posted funds for the university to build a museum of vertebrae zoology after state appropriations fell short of covering the cost. Along with her life's work, she also had parents well-known in Hawaii. Her father was Samuel Thomas Alexander, who co-founded Alexander and Baldwin. Her mother was Martha Cook, the daughter of Amos Starr Cook, the founder of Castle and Cook. And her name was Annie Montague Alexander. And our winner today was David Alexander calling in from Kekaha. He says that Annie Alexander was his great, great aunt. We love those connections. Thanks for calling in. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Over the weekend, a U.S. Army soldier with the 25th Infantry Division stationed at Schofield Barracks tested positive for COVID-19. It was the first confirmed case of coronavirus among military personnel in Hawaii. The next day, a Marine stationed in Kaneohe also tested positive for the virus. And of yesterday evening, there were five COVID-19 cases related to the Army, including personnel at Tripler Army Medical Center. Each military base on Oahu is handling its own COVID-19 response and communications. Joint Base Pearl Harbor-Hickam has been posting updates on Facebook and its website around 5 p.m. every weekday with periodic weekend updates. The U.S. Army Garrison Hawaii has been keeping active, uh, you know, keeping its members uh, and families up to date. It posts a video on Facebook and has been taking questions ahead of their Wednesday updates. A familiar face on these videos is Colonel Tom Barrett, who has been commander of the U.S. Army Garrison Hawaii since 2018. Here's what he had to say at yesterday's Facebook briefing. Today, we move to health protection condition level Charlie. This was directed by U.S. Indo-PACOM. The determination was based on the analysis at the local risk level. So what does that mean? In, at health protection level Charlie, or condition Charlie, the risk level is increasing, and it is be, beginning to be substantial. So we are seeing sustained community transmission in Hawaii. So the U.S. Army Hawaii leadership is constantly assessing the local conditions and making decisions to safeguard the community's health. And you saw that yesterday and really today with a little bit more closures to include access points on post and closing some gates. The decisions are based on needs, risk, and the guidance of medical professionals. As we continue our efforts to protect the community and slow the spread of COVID in the Army and in Hawaii, the U.S. Army Senior Commander has issued guidance to reduce forces to minimum essential personnel effective tomorrow. Each commander will decide which personnel are necessary and required to carry out those units' missions. Just before that online briefing, Colonel Barrett spoke with the conversation's Jason Ubai about the Army's response to the COVID-19 crisis. 
So I'm essentially the city manager for the Army in Hawaii. So the 98,000 soldiers, family members, civilians, retirees that make up the Army in Hawaii is, is kind of where my responsibility lies. And it's all the similar functions that the, any city in the country would have. I provide power, water, sewer, emergency services, you know, all the normal facilities, you think, to include things like parks and recreation. And so uh, really to your question is, is how do we inform and connect with the community? And, and you know the, the COVID situation nationwide and, uh, and in the state of Hawaii is dynamic and rapid. And so the priority that the Army has is to protect the health of the force in our community. And so how we're doing that is trying to be as transparent and share as much information as possible. So we've done a couple of things. We've established on the Garrison's website a COVID-19 resource page. So uh, home.army.mil for the Army community in Hawaii. And that website has links to frequently asked questions. It talks about impacted installation services and closures, information on the health protection condition levels. We, we update the statuses of positive cases within the Army in Hawaii and information about our Facebook community updates. And really that's probably the best way that I've been able to put out information is every day we're doing a live community update on Facebook and that's every night at 6 p.m. on the Garrison's Facebook site. We started doing them on March 14th and then we do special sessions with senior Army leadership Wednesdays and that's really question and answers and then every and then Sundays the senior commander so Major General Gerard does an update on Sunday nights and so that's how we've, we've looked to put out information um, we do it in the evening and uh, the other piece is the community is very engaged on Facebook and so we take those questions and we're able to respond to the community as well regarding some of the questions what do you what are some of the common questions that you're hearing from uh, personnel and their families? You know, I think the families are, are trying to understand what's going on in the community. What are we doing and why? You know, if we're closing a gate, what does that look like? You know, why are you taking this action? Why haven't you taken that action? Um, and so how do we inform the community on that piece? Um, I think, you know, it's, it's people want information. Um, and so I think as we push information, but it's um, trying to think of some of the other questions that, uh, that families may want. Medical is a big one. They want to know the medical piece. We've tried to push what do they do, what is the testing requirements, where can they get tested, why aren't they getting tested. And so in some cases I've had uh, the commander of Triple Army Medical Center on to really answer some of those questions. The big one is really kind of what's open and what's not. And lately, with the state proclamation, the, the mayor's proclamation, you know, we've closed some things. So, you know, for example, um, Monday we made the decision to close all the gyms. And so how do we inform folks what's actually being updated and what's closed? What's the status on base as far as uh, recreation? Is it the same as the city parks here where, uh, you know, folks can go outside, but they're not uh, supposed to be within six feet of each other? Yeah, we've, we are following the same, emphasizing social distancing. Um, we have not necessarily closed parks. We don't have parks on the base. We have playgrounds for kids. Um, we've not made a conscious effort to close them, but what we've done is told folks, look, you need to 
not be in groups, uh, in large groups. I think 10 is the answer. Um, but really the intent is social distancing to be greater than six feet and, and reinforcing, hey, if you don't have to go out, don't go out. The Army is always going to be about physical fitness. So how do we enable soldiers to go out and, and maintain their fitness? And frankly, you know, we have outdoor fitness areas on our installations. We have pull-up bars scattered throughout them. So there's plenty of opportunities, whether soldiers or family members can go out and maintain some level of physical fitness. And we encourage folks to do that, just not in large groups. Maintain the social distancing uh, is really the key there. You mentioned the closed gates earlier. And can you talk about that, how that is affecting uh, traffic in and out? And actually, I think last week or one of the first town halls, I know that was one of the questions about the, the gate guards. Can you talk about the protocol and how, as far as today, how things are going uh, at the gates? Yeah, so, so two questions there. But uh, one is the protocols to, to actually when you come on on base. And so what I'll frame it with is the, the leadership in Hawaii, particularly the Army leadership, we are constantly assessing the conditions and making decisions to safeguard the community as well as uh, the soldiers who work on base. So it's what's the risk and then what's, is that informed by the guidance of medical professionals? And so at the gates, we've established the no-touch policies, right? So we did that early on. Drivers hold out their ID cards at an arm's length from the guard, and then the guard uses the scanner at an arm's length and then scans them in. So there's still a security requirement to monitor who comes on the installation, but we've been able to mitigate the risk. So instead of handing ID cards back and forth, we can just scan them without physical contact. Now, the second part of your question is in terms of, you know, closing some of the access gates. And so effective today, we closed five of 17 gates on Army installations in Hawaii. Those closures don't change who can access the installation, but really the intent is to reduce unnecessary and non-essential movement onto or off Army installation. And the intent is to, to reduce the risk of transmission of COVID throughout Army installations and really Hawaii. And so this effort aligns with the governors and mayors kind of state home orders. And we recognize that it's, it's an inconvenience. And so it hasn't changed. I think it's reduced the flow of traffic and it's also kind of funneled it, but it's really kind of sending the message that folks should stay at home. And if you don't have to go out, don't go out. Although there was, there is a requirement. There's always going to be a requirement for the army to be ready. So there's going to be a requirement for soldiers to come on post to execute, um, potentially training or um, execute mission requirements in support of, of the Army. I, I know some of the things that you guys are doing are in tandem with what's going on for the, the city and the state's guidance, but anything in particular on base that, that you're doing to keep everyone there safe? Yeah. So, so we, you know, I talked about it earlier is emphasizing the social distancing. You know, we've restricted the number of shoppers allowed in the facilities like our grocery store We've put footprints on the floors, on the uh, shopping stores, the department stores, um, to really show folks that they're standing in line what six feet of distancing looks like. So you know if you're waiting in line, you should be kind of standing at the footprints and spread out. Many of the garrison uh, services have been moved to online, or in some cases if you're required to come in, uh, to appointment only. So that's really the piece. And then we've limited dining facilities food establishments to take out only. Um, and so, 
we've kind of helped, you know, we have a giant food court. We've taken all the chairs out of the food court to kind of emphasize, you know, hey, it's, it's takeout only. And then in general, just to emphasize uh, health and hygiene. And then the message is, if you're sick, stay at home. And so those are kind of the, the folks, the, the protocols that we put in place here on the installations in Hawaii. And we'll continue to assess based on the needs and risk and, and guidance of medical professionals. I will add a couple things too, because what I forgot to tell you is we, we've added hand washing stations throughout uh, what I would call high traffic areas. So in front of our grocery stores, in front of our department stores, in front of gas stations where folks are coming and touching, we've emphasized and put hand washing stations. And then we've also emphasized organizational cleaning. So we've taken time, we've reduced the hours at the grocery store so that the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, and the end of the day, they can provide some enhanced cleaning where folks are touching uh, pin pads as well as shopping carts and, and kind of those sorts of things in uh, the stores. Is there uh, any updates about the uh, Tripler? I, I would defer to Tripler. You know, I would tell you that they've established some drive-through testing facilities, just like the state, um, and they're continuing to refine their process. I, I would put out that they're limiting visitors, which I think is important for the community to aware. I mean, there's exceptions. Um, you know, for example, children will need an escort, but they're really trying to reduce the risk to both patients and healthcare workers. And I think that's similar to what's going to be done in hospitals here in the state. Anything else that you wanted to underscore? You know, I, I think it's um, one is I'd always say go to the garrison website, uh, home.army.mil. That's going to be the most updated list of closures as well as some valuable information on COVID. You know, these are unbelievably challenging and trying times, I think more so than many of us have ever seen. And, and for those of us in the Army, you know, we are fortunate to live and work in Hawaii uh, with the Aloha spirit and us together as a community. You know, the Army is a part of the community in Hawaii, and, and we have to be working together to really mitigate the effects of this virus and, and take action to ensure that we do flatten the curve so that we protect, you know, our families and our future, our, our keiki as well as the community here in Hawaii. And I would just say, you know, the, the updates that I provide, encourage anybody who's interested or follow, you know, we're trying to be as transparent and provide as much information as possible. And again, I mentioned the website and uh, just thank you very much for having me. And we just have to continue to work together to help slow the spread of COVID. That was Colonel Tom Barrett, commander of U.S. Army Garrison Hawaii. Links to the websites of Hawaii's military communities can be found on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. That is it for today. Tomorrow, we hope to hear about how you are coping during this stressful time. We plan a call-in show with a couple of psychologists. Call in or record your comments and questions ahead of time on our talkback line at 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.